Well, good morning again. If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find Titus chapter 1 as we continue our series, Saving Grace, Changing Grace. And just before we get going, I uh, recognizing this is Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday, uh, although the message is not on there, there will be a little, I have a little vignette in there on, on families, uh, but just a couple of things. We do value life from conception. We believe the Bible teaches uh, that uh, God sanctifies life from conception. You read Psalm 139. I also want to just uh, recognize two other uh, people who could not be on the platform uh, this morning. One is those of you who have uh, never been able to conceive or once you did conceive, you could never bring that child to, into the world for various reasons. I talked to someone just the other day who was in tears and shared with me that he and his wife have had uh, a couple of miscarriages. They would love to be up here, but it hasn't happened. And uh, so our hearts go out to you. We want you to know that. We also want to recognize in the spirit of James 1.27 that God honors individuals calling it true religion when you love on the orphan, when you are one of these who are adopting or you're fostering. Uh, and uh, those of you who are involved in foster or respite care, uh, we know that the laws don't always prom- uh, allow you to get up here on the platform so that we can, could, but you'd like to dedicate those babies to Jesus just like anybody else. And we want you to know that our hearts are with you as well on a day like today. Amen? All right, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 10 through 16. This is, I'm just going to tell you another little, little caveat here. This is a hard passage of Scripture. This is not a passage of Scripture that, um, uh, that's easy to preach because it's talking about false teachers. But we don't skip over Bible passages around here. And aren't you glad? We just don't do that. We want to remind you of that because... There is strong warnings in Scripture, and this isn't the only one, against the insidious, and that's the word, the ins- that's a good word in this case, the insidiousness of false teaching. It doesn't come to you with horns and a, and a pitchfork. It grabs you without you even knowing it. A number of years ago, uh, you were, some of you know that uh, the Ebola pandemic took place in Africa, got everybody's attention. Thousands of individuals died. It was a horrific death, bleeding, high fevers, bleeding from about every orifice, and then eventual death. About that time, uh, one of our missionaries, we had missionaries in Togo. We've helped to start a couple of hospitals. Lots of churches have been started. One of our own missionaries, he's here in this very service, uh, is there. And he was here on furlough then, too, at the time when the leading doctor in the hospital contracted a fever and died. It wasn't Ebola. It was sort of a cousin, Lhasa, killed him. And the hospital was devastated. The missionaries were devastated. Our own missionary stateside was devastated, wanted to get back to encourage them, attend the funeral, love on those other missionaries. And so we sent Abe Miller and our missionary Josh Farver on that 14-hour trip to Togo, only to land in Lome to take another arduous nine-hour trip up into the sub-Saharan where the hospital was and encourage the other missionaries. 
But they no sooner landed, but I got a phone call for Abe saying, Pastor, we're here and we're ready to take off and we want to go. Josh really wants to go. He really wants to love on these missionaries. But we discovered that two or three others, two or three other medical personnel have contracted fevers. They've canceled the funeral. What do you want us to do? Well, what should we have done then? Let me tell you something. There's another virus that's pandemic, and it's in this country. It's called false teaching, and it's killing souls, souls, mind you, by the thousands. And the risk, like a virulent thing like Ebola, are very, very high. The Apostle Paul, having reminded Titus that truth principally comes on the wings of preaching. That's in verse 3. The heralding of the word of God. Not just from a pulpit, but like this, one-on-one. And reminds him why he dropped him off in Crete to begin with, which was to appoint elders in all of the cities. Remember we said there were about 100 cities on the island of Crete and probably dozens of churches. Titus had a, had a big job. And the elders we saw last week, were to meet the spiritual qualifications of a godly man of God. And that man both comforts and confronts, right? He carries the ball and the feather, right? And the man who tells you he's called to, the, to preaching, who can only comfort but never confront, or, or only confronts but can never comfort, he's not a balanced man. He might be called, but he's not called by God, especially if he can't preach on the hard things like sin and its consequences and even hell. The Apostle Paul was so concerned with what was going on in Crete. He had the same concern with what was going on in Galatia because that church had been caught up in legalism, the worst of them all, of spiritual viruses. He even had, you talk about strong words. Look what he said to the Galatians when he, in chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Say the word. Accursed. The word means to be damned. That's strong language. This passage, where we left off last week in our study of Titus, doesn't leave any wiggle room either or mince words when it comes to those who preach another gospel, which isn't a gospel at all. But here's the passage beginning in verse 10. For, or because, this is the reason why you're raising up strong eldership, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now we know their orientation. This is a Jewish sect that, again, they're a legalistic sect of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy glutton. That's about right. Therefore rebuke them sharply. The word means to cut. That they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. They were, that, now now we get a, we're starting to see what was going on there, introducing uh, Jewish legalism, ritualism, and superstition. Verse, 
15, to the pure, all things are pure. By the way, that's one verse you never want to take out of its context, okay? That's got to be right back in the context or you're not going to understand it. But both their minds, I'm sorry, but to the, but to the, um, uh, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. Well, that's a happy text, isn't it? Remember the characteristics of the godly elder we saw last week? We said he has to be right. That was our key word. He has to be right. He's got to be right in his heart. He's got to be right in his home. He's got to be right in his habits, and he needs to be right in his head. Amen? Well, the, the false teacher is the antithesis to the, the true or the godly elder of God. He is wrong. He's wrong-hearted. He's wrong in his home. He's wrong in his habits. And he's wrong in his head. And that's what we want to use that as an outline. Now, by the way, false teachers are not mean people. Not necessarily. I, I don't want you picturing somebody with a, like a devil with a pitchfork here, Okay. They can be very, they, they, they may have sweet demeanors. They may be well-intentioned. They don't come to you as ill-intentioned. Well, some of them might. But I think most of them are, dece- they deceive themselves before they deceive anybody else. And remember, Paul said to the, uh, the Corinthians that even Satan himself, when talking about false teachers, disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, isn't that nice? an angel of light. That's how they come. I'll never forget, as a young, very young pastor, just starting in the ministry, hearing a 48-year-old John MacArthur, now 80, still preaching. That wasn't a hint. I'm, I hope I got several more years, but we'll see about 80. Anyway, he was 48, and he was preaching from this passage. Listen, this, these are the words he preached. This is the words he read from. Now, the Spirit speaks expressively that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, does that sound eerie? Go like this. So, you would expect seducing spirits, doctrines of demons demons. I mean, we're talking about denying Jesus. We're talking about denying salvation by grace through faith. We're talking about denying the inspiration of the Bible. But what he would say afterwards stunned me. And I'll share that with you in a little bit. His point was that Satan deals with subtleties in order to draw us in. So Paul wants Titus to protect these flocks by appointing real men of God who are unafraid to tell the truth, comfort, and confront. And God wants his elders today to do the same, but we have to identify these false teachers. So let's do that this morning. How do you recognize them? How do you recognize a false teacher? Well, first of all, he's wrong. He's just wrong. He's wrong in his heart. And you see there, Paul says in verse 10, there are many that like that. There were many then on the island of Crete. There are many today, too many. And I know I'm never popular when on rare occasions, and it is rare occasions, that I call out someone by name whose theology is corrupting whole people groups. But sometimes it's necessary. The apostle Paul did it. 
I mean, you don't want somebody who does it all the time. You, you couldn't handle that. And I would say there's something wrong with his, with his heart. That You know, the, the pastor who you say, hey, let's go to church to hear who he's going to call out today. There's just something wrong. I don't want to be that guy. You wouldn't want me to be that guy because if that was me, I'd have a heart issue. That's not right. I remember when I was young studying history. I love history and the history of the church. And there was, in the early part of the... Of, um, the 1900s, there was what was popularly known as the fundamentalist movement. And there were some amazing characters that were actually caricatures of men of God. Great orators. One particular individual, his name was J. Frank Norris. This guy was so mesmerizing. I'm not kidding you. He pastored not one but two churches at the same time. Not just that, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and the other in Detroit, Michigan. He, he traveled by plane and by train to both of them. 26,000 people would gather every week in these two churches to hear this man preach, not knowing what church he'd show up in. I mean, this guy did preach the gospel, but he did a little more than he didn't preach the Bible. He, he, just, he, just, he just ripped stuff out of his context, and he would just waylay people. He would, he would talk he would call out. He would say, come back tonight, and I will tell you who all the corrupt members of the city council are. Well, that'll pack the place. In fact, one morning he said, there's somebody in this room right now. I know of a man who's committing adultery on his wife, and she doesn't even know it, and I will name him tonight. Thirteen men showed up in his office that afternoon. True story. Oh, please don't call me out. Anyway. I mean, effective, I guess. <laughs> but there was just something wrong in that dude's heart. That's, that was the way his whole ministry was. And there's something wrong in the heart of a false teacher. Remember Jim Baker? He finally got thrown into jail. But while he was in jail, he wrote a book. You know what the title of the book was? The title of the book was, I Was Wrong. Now, his theology today is still whacked out, but at least he was humble enough to admit, and he does so in the book, quote, I was a false teacher. Wow. And he was. Paul calls them, look at this, empty talkers. A lot of talk, little substance. Like the Texas, you know, the, the Texas with the big hat, big boots, no cattle. You know anybody like that? You ever been in a place like that? He, it gets worse. He says he, he calls them deceivers. They're downright dangerous, and he identifies them as from the circumcision party. So that tells it that they were legalist. And I'm going to camp a little bit here because one of the greatest dangers to the church will always be legalism in its various forms. Because listen to this, legalism, which is, the, which is basically the heart model that says, the model that says, I do, therefore I'm right. That's legalism. I do, therefore I'm right. Legalism at its core, listen to this, legalism at its core is a heart issue. It's a heart issue because when you're a legalist, you just feel really good about yourself even though you're miserable in other ways. The false teacher is wrong in his heart. He's wrong in his home. And yours too, I might add. Did, you got to see this on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Did you catch the phrase, they're upsetting Whole families. You see that? That's the, the capacity 
and the ability of false teachers. They can wreck whole groups of people with their false teaching. You, you mess up a father, and, you, and you know, the whole clan comes down, and there's no calculating the sorrow one man can bring to a family when he gives in to, to sin and false doctrine. I have observed men over the years who have roped entire families into believing bad theology. They end up in bad churches or no church at all. I, I confronted one man once who was a, a member of, of the church who was believing false things about God. He'd lowered his view of God. And he, he really was believing a false, doc, a false gospel. And I called him out on it. Others called him on it. He was unwavering, kind, nice, not a mean-spirited dude, but he was off. I said, you're done. You need to leave the membership. You're not with us. What you believe is false. The risk of spreading is too great. But as Paul Harvey would say, wash your ears out with this, okay? Uh, how many of you know, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but we have a, there's a young couple in our, our, our church, and I got her permission to use her name, Lindsay Jo Andrews. She and her family will be in the next service. Amazing testimony. Adopted. And Lindsay Jo told me this just the other day. She said, she said Pastor, she said, um, you got to know this. I got to tell you, you're preaching on false teachers? I said, yeah. She says, I got to tell you something. I, I never thought about this until just now. But, you know, we started coming, we came to Christ. We started coming here to Sarahville. My parents are from Missouri. So, you know, we got kids. They got to come up and see the grandkids. So they come up on special days like Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And they started coming up over these last couple of years. They were hearing truth articulated from the Bible. They were in a church that was not sound. My dad was a leader in the church, and God got a hold of their hearts. They left the church, and now they're in a gospel-centered church. So just as false theology from one guy can corrupt whole families, upset whole families, so truth can turn the whole thing upside down, amen, and do great things. But these individuals are wrong in their homes, and they'll worm their way into yours if they can. He's wrong in his habits. Now look at verse 13 where he talks about these Cretans, and they're all liars and this and that. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be, and this is the goal, sound in the faith. See that word sound? That, that Greek word is where we get our English word hygiene. I mean, I shook hands with somebody over there, and I, I smelled the ammonia. They're all, you're all scrubbing yourself after shaking hands because we don't want to get germs. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you something. There's something a lot worse than the germs you're getting on your hands. It's called false teaching. And that's why every ministry trickling right down to the, the littlest ones in our church has got to be sound. It has to be healthy. The teaching must be true. And just, let me tell you, just the other day, uh, my wife and I were in a couple's home who came to Christ recently, wonderful couple, and they have been very instrumental in bringing other people the gospel, and they brought this sweet young couple into their home with their little family, and we've been sharing the gospel with them the last couple of weeks. She'd been sharing the gospel with her friend. While we were there, uh, the mom told us, she said, you know, we were, we were talking to our daughter who was in the Sailorville Kids program just a couple weeks ago. 
And, and she was actually under Joey Smith. Joey Smith, by the way, is on her way to Togo next week as a nurse. And uh, her mom asked her daughter, hey, do you, believe, do you believe in God? Her daughter said, of course. But then her mom said, how do you really know? Good question. This is, this is the unsaved mom asking the daughter, how do you really know? And the daughter's reply was, because if you don't believe, you're an enemy of God. Been to church two weeks. That's healthy doctrine, amen? That's right out of Romans 5. That's happening at the, at, at the kids' level. Oh, by the way, the mom just gave her heart to Jesus just the other day. Praise the Lord, amen? How cool is that? So the false teacher... Is, he's, got, he's bad in his heart, he's bad in his home, he's bad in his habits. You look at verse 10, where he talks about, in verse 14, he talks about the circumcision party, he talks about this, the, the, the Jewish myths and commands. He's a, a strange combination of Old Testament law and superstition. Anybody know anybody superstitious? Don't point. I mean, we know that Peter wrestled with this more than once. Paul was so upset with the Galatians, we just looked at the verse a little bit earlier. Here's a scripture all of you should know and think about. Paul said to the Galatians in his frustration in chapter 3 and verse 3, he said, he said, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? That might be the greatest rhetorical question asked in the entire New Testament. Having begun in the Spirit, the Spirit of God is the one who regenerates us when, if and when you trust Jesus as your Savior. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And the insinuation is they were, they were trying to struggle on it. Their legalism was taking over their lives. It was corrupting their habits the whole nine yards. This is the reason why he would say in the next chapter, my little children, my little technon, my little born ones, literally, in whom I labor in birth pangs until Christ is formed in you. Have you ever read that? And the formation is a heart thing. These things always lead, listen, legalism always, listen to this, legalism always, listen, legalism always leads to attitudes of superiority. Mark those words. Always. Paul addresses that in various places in the New Testament, particularly the book of Galatians, but he has a huge little segment in Colossians chapter 2. Everybody should read verses 20 through 23, and he concludes it by saying that when you are a legalist individual, you know, feeling real puffy and superior. He says this. He says, these things have a, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So mark that down. I remember years ago working with a woman, and for a number of years, I loved this gal. We worked closely together and she was as straight-laced as you could be. She'd been to a well-known Christian university, and just, she had her music was right, her, her habits were right, uh, everything was prim and proper about her, everything. But she was, there was also a hardness about her. And I don't know if it's because I worked with her so much that it was just hard for me to put my finger on, what was the issue with this woman? I'll never forget... Um, 
uh, a friend of ours came through and spent some time with her, and she turned to me, and she said, well, Pat, I know what the problem is. She has no joy. And it's like, yeah, no joy, no joy. She was doing everything, because legalism, listen to this, legalism will never bring you joy. Paul's passion was always to appeal to the heart where true spirituality takes place, resulting in true adornment. We're going to get to that, Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Adorning the gospel of God our Savior. True adornment of the gospel and the joy of God's people. And the results are more people look more like Jesus. Listen, if your life is driven by externals, I guarantee you, you cannot be a joyful child of God. You can't. You might feel better. You might feel more superior. I asked somebody just the other day, are you joyful? And he said, yes. I said, well, then tell your face. <laughs> but if you're, if you're given to the externals, if that's what drives you, you'll look Right, you'll look clean and you'll also look miserable because you are miserable. You're not filled with the spirit, you're just taking externals and and trying to apply those to Christianity. And Paul doesn't mince words, as we've said. He confronts these individuals who go beyond the scripture, which is what legalism does. It goes beyond the scripture. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, just came to my mind just now, do not go beyond what is written. Have you ever read that? And so he says to them, they must be silenced. They ought not to teach. They're upsetting whole families. Rebuke them sharply. And the word sharply means to cut. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hey, dial it down. Dial it down, Paul. I mean, you know, Paul, you're going to catch more flies with honey than vinegar. That'd be true if I was trying to catch flies. But flies are disgusting. They're disgusting. And so are false teachers in their teaching. The word detestable there at the end of verse 16 means uh, loathsome. It means that which causes disgust. And I can't think of anything in my life that causes me more disgust than a fly. I don't want that. That fly lands on my sandwich and leaves a vomit drop. That part of the sandwich will never, ever see my lips. Beelzebub, the Lord of the fly. That's who Satan is. And Paul thinks of this as the habits of a legalist. By the way, in verse 16, he says, they, 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 uh, they, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. You see that? In the, in the original, the God is emphatic. The word God, the name of God is emphatic. Means that, that just means it's at the beginning of the sentence. God, they profess. That's what it's saying. Like 1 John 2, 4, right? There's that person who says, I know God, but in works, he denies him, right? He's, he's a liar, right? And my wife and I talked to a woman that made a decision for Jesus many years ago, never took off, never any real fruit, nothing sustained, picked up for disorderly conduct and drunkenness, and we're talking to her, and here's the first words out of her mouth, well, I just want to preach the gospel. I said, please don't, please don't, please don't. Seriously. 
Your life is saying something. It, your life is saying whether you are a Christ confessor or just one who talks. These guys are wrong in their habits. It comes out eventually. And he's wrong in his head. Verse 15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. Don't take it out of context. It's talking about the Jewish rituals, matter of foods. By the way, Jesus had already dealt this thing. Remember when Jesus said, remember Jesus said, these people draw near me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. That's a serious accusation. Do you know what he was talking about? Do you know what the context of that is? Rituals and foods. Rituals and foods. So, when I heard the younger John MacArthur preaching that one day, and he said, talking about false teachers, he quoted that verse from 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, if you were wondering the reference. In the latter times... Men will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. I'm waiting for denying Jesus, denying the inspiration of the Bible, denying some other cardinal doctrine. And the next verse says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from certain foods. What? Commanding to abstain from certain foods is a doctrine of a demon? Is a, is a seducing spirit? It just seems so trivial, doesn't it? But here is MacArthur's whammy. He said, in essence, he said, false teachers deal in subtleties. Not so obvious, but the kind of things that suck us in through trivial means. And, I, and I'm just thinking of our own generation, how hung up are we are on our diets and all of these things, and we're just one click, two clicks, three clicks away from the truth. We're wrong in our heads and that's why he says their minds are, look, he mentions their minds and their consciences in verse 15. Their minds are messed up. Their consciences are screwed up. Remember, the elder has to be right in his head. They're not, but their masters are getting into yours. And I mean, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's back there in that first century. Are you kidding me? Human nature hasn't changed. If you're in a, I remember, I remember those of you that are watching online, if you're in a church that doesn't preach the truth, that isn't like a dog on a bone over the truth in, in the words of Adrian Rogers, you should fill that church with your absence. And he, I remember him saying, I know what you're thinking. My grandma's buried out back. Listen, your grandma get up and leave too if she could. The Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter Six, that we are to come out from those places and, and touch not the unclean thing. So when Abe called, they're there in Lome facing an eight-hour trip. Two or three people are sick. It could be the same thing that took out the doctor. But Josh wanted to go. His heart was with them, with his, with his companions. What should we do? I told him Get their butts on the plane and get back home. The reason I told them that was I said, as noble as it is that you want to encourage the missionary, it's not worth losing more lives in the process. The risk of unsound, unhealthy teaching 
And the infection it brings is worse than death. It's worse than death. Because its power, its very nature is to spread and cause what the Bible calls a second death. And a second death is when you go to hell. And really, this 16th verse, talk about an abrupt ending here. This 16th verse is a great litmus test. All of you, all of us should put upon ourselves. You profess to know God. I'm going to say that's most of you in this room. But what are your works saying? Because they're talking even louder than your words. Do you know him? Jesus said, if you know the truth, it's the truth that will set you free. Amen? God, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to go through this hard passage about false teachers, but we don't want to dodge things like this, Lord. Protect your flock through your word and through godly elders and save us from those who would worm their way into our hearts, into our heads, into our homes, and into our habits. And may we be a truly free people loving you with all of our hearts, soul, minds, and strengths and giving you the glory with our lives that our lives might clearly say along with our lips, we love you, Lord. We exalt your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.